Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. The stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not alone. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Katie. For 31 Rock, Rock Crimson Road. What's Send the police. Send the police. Hey guys, don't be a hero, mate. I said I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogers. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh, with a nail, Carl Williams hands to a coffee table and just, and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, whose, whose life would be. I'd harm someone each time I. Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, uh, especially at first. Uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia and indeed around the globe. So, trick question. What will you be covering this week, Barney? Well, Tara, we have another special edition. We do. It started out as a Barney story, but then we realised we needed to give it more time to do it justice. So, it's become a special. And this is something that's very close to both our hearts. Um, Indeed. It's really affected us, and uh, we we thought we wanted to give it the proper special edition treatment. Yep. So this week, we're going to be talking about a tragic Australian case of family violence that authorities let continue on for years until eventually it ended in murder. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details, bloodymurderpodcast.com. Okay, Tara, let's tackle the Rosie Batty story. All right. Are you ready? I am. That's good. In Australia, one in six women and one in 16 men have experienced physical and or sexual domestic violence since the age of 15. In the US, it's one in three women and one in four men. In Australia, an average of one woman a week and one man a month are killed by a current or former partner. In the US, nearly three women a day are murdered by current or former partners. One in three female murder victims in the US and one in 20 male murder victims are killed in domestic violence situations. These statistics are shocking and show that the way family and domestic violence are managed by authorities needs to be improved. Today we're talking about a case of courage in the face of unthinkable pain and how a remarkable woman was able to make significant changes to the way these issues are dealt with in Australia. Rosemary Ann Batty was born February 9th, 1962 in Lincolnshire, England. She was raised on a farm in the small town of Laneham by her mother and father with her two younger brothers. When Rosie was six years old, her mother died of a strangulated hernia. She remembers her mother being taken out of the house on a stretcher to a waiting ambulance, but didn't learn of her death until days later. Rosie didn't believe her mother's death could be real until she saw the headstone on her grave when it was finally erected in the small churchyard opposite her house. Rosie and her brothers were then raised by her father and her maternal grandmother. Rosie says that her mother's death had a long-term impact. I've not really formed permanent relations with anybody. I've never been married and neither have my two other brothers. I think it really traumatises you from having key relationships because of that fear that they're going to leave you. 
She took comfort from her grandmother, who told Rosie she looked like her mother. As the years went by, Rosie's memories of her mother were starting to fade, so she sought out stories from those who knew her. Rosie's grandmother was always happy to oblige. As she grew up, Rosie kept to herself and preferred the company of animals to people. Ah, here ya. At the family farm, there were dogs, cats, rabbits, chickens, goats, a donkey, and a horse to ride. At primary school, tomboy Rosie did well in sports, especially running, winning race after race. With all the weird stares behind her and the cold English wind in her face, Rosie felt she was running toward a better future. When Rosie was twelve, her father remarried. Although much younger than her forty-two-year-old dad, twenty-eight-year-old Josephine from New Zealand made her father happy. It had the opposite effect on Rosie, though. She found it upsetting to see her mother being replaced, and she started to act out. Her better-than-average reports from school turned into below-average reports. One of the problems was that Rosie had started to notice boys. Uh oh. At thirteen, she was shipped off to Catholic boarding school, much to Rosie's horror. But after a while, she found the structure and even the spiritual teachings suited her, and she thrived. Rosie enjoyed coming home at weekends and holidays to see her father and her younger brothers. She also grew to love her stepmother Josephine. After five years of marriage, her father and Josephine had a new brother for Rosie, baby Terry. Seventeen-year-old Rosie was thrilled and adored her half-brother, fawning over him every chance she got. Do you think she liked to smell the top of his head? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the baby right. smell sweet right. spot. As well, I'm told that by you. It is. I love the smell of baby. You sheds. really do. In the morning, in the afternoon, even yeah. at night. Yes. After high school, she said goodbye to the nuns at boarding school and completed a secretarial course. Afterwards, she worked as a bank clerk in the nearby town of Retford. But being a boring bank teller in a boring country town was not floating Rosie's boat. She wanted to see the world. Her next job was a nanny in Austria. Caring for a two-year-old and a four-year-old in a small town where she couldn't speak the language was not exactly what Rosie had in mind. Though things improved when she met fellow nanny Sue. They would sneak out to a local bar at 11 p.m., return home at 5 a.m. just in time to get the children up and ready for their day. Rosie would then nap on the couch. This didn't turn out to be the perfect crime, and Rosie was soon fired. By now, it was 1982. She found another nanny job in Austria, and her life got a bit more interesting when she met a man named Richard. Although he had lost a leg in a car accident, he was a brilliant skier. God, I can't even ski on two legs, Richard. That's pretty awesome. Rosie, being a born carer, was smitten by this broken bird of a man. A lifetime habit of being attracted to the underdog had begun. Romance ensued, the kind of love abroad where it doesn't matter that you don't share a common language or common anything much else. They would meet up in Munich, Germany, and go out to concerts, including Joe Cocker, Christaberg, and Supertramp. Man, that sounds sweet. Ah,、uh, yeah, Lady in Red, you can leave your hat on. <laughs> <laughs> After the nanny job finished, Rosie bought a beat-up Renault and toured Europe with her friend Alison. Being free, living cheap, and sleeping in the car appealed to them. It was a great adventure. They often camped in parks at night, and more than once were awakened in the morning by naked middle-aged Germans cooking their breakfast. <laughs> I love that it happened more than once. The young women were unable to see the nudist camp signs in the darkness when they parked their car. <laughs> What do you think a German nudist sign looks like, Tara? Ah,、uh, I don't know. Like, can a stick figure have a bum <laughs> leaning over, maybe with a, a pan and some sausages? I guess. I don't really know. <laughs> I'm going to have to figure it out, though. If anyone knows, please inform us. At 21 years of age and out of money, it was time for Rosie to return home. She'd seen the world and felt different, but Laneham, England, had not changed, nor had the people. She got a job and went to the Butcher's Arms every Friday night for pints, just like everybody else. It was at this pub that Rosie was reacquainted with a guy named Phil, who she'd known all of her life. Phil had been in a horrendous car accident, which had killed the passenger and caused Phil to lose an arm. This broken bird was Rosie Bate, and they started a relationship. As much as Rosie loved one-armed Phil, she found that even after surviving a deadly crash, he still drove like a maniac. So she called it off. Yeah, that would be a deal breaker. Then came another relationship with another local man, William. But after three years, she still had the desire to travel and saved up for a holiday in Australia. On arrival, she instantly fell for the charm and friendly nature of the Australian people. 
Well, she, well, she didn't meet us. <laughs> yeah, did she? I know. Um, where was she? Uh, although it took a while for her to understand their weird mannerisms and speech, she wondered why people would say "see you later" instead of goodbye. She was pretty sure that she had no plans to see the man selling fish and chips later on. After six months, it was with great sadness that Rosie left Australia to return to the rainy grey skies of England. She resumed her relationship with William, but the magic just wasn't there. Rosie had met someone in Australia and she wanted to go back. Jake, well not his real name, it's what Rosie calls him in her book, was living in Melbourne and although he was a heavy drinker, Rosie believed she could help him. In 1987, age 25, Rosie flew into Brisbane and got a connecting flight to Melbourne. She immediately moved in with Jake. It was a turbulent five-year relationship and in the end, the alcohol won. She couldn't fix Jake and they said their goodbyes. 33-year-old Greg Anderson was a strapping, well-groomed, handsome professional with a wicked sense of humour. So when Rosie met Anderson while working in a recruitment company, she was immediately interested. Anderson was estranged from his wife and son to such a degree that he never saw them. Rosie initially thought this was a bit strange, but put it out of her mind, preferring to focus on the positives, saying, He was different. He wore suits. He was well-dressed, but he was also quirky. The pair began seeing each other, with Anderson often staying over at Rosie's house in Belgrave. In the initial honeymoon phase, it was a passionate, fun-filled relationship, which bore no resemblance to what it would become. At one point, Rosie took Anderson to a friend's party and introduced him around. Rosie's friends took her aside and said Anderson was a dickhead and advised her not to date him, but she couldn't see their point of view. Rosie, who Anderson nicknamed McBatty, said that she was often in fits of laughter when they were together. He would throw me over his shoulder and twirl me around, she said. He always indicated how much he loved me. The relationship lasted two years, with Anderson moving out of Rosie's home when she was away. There was no animosity, she said. We were young and it just ended. She did not see him for another eight years, but when their paths crossed again, it was clear they still had strong feelings for each other. The relationship was rekindled, although the couple didn't live together. Almost immediately, Rosie, then almost 40, fell pregnant. Anderson even proposed, but Rosie had reservations. At around the same time, she began to see another, darker side to Greg Anderson. She learnt very quickly that she did not want to co-parent or share custody with this man. After the 9-11 attacks, like most of us, Rosie's eyes were glued to the TV as the horror unfolded. Anderson was not impressed and told Rosie to go to bed and said, I don't give a fuck, the Americans had it coming. Rosie couldn't believe the lack of compassion and empathy he had for the people affected. He would also yell frustratedly at Rosie in the car if they happened to see an overweight person, all these fat people everywhere, they disgust me. Rosie has said that Anderson showed signs of sexual violence whilst they were together including attempting to rape a friend of hers. Unannounced visits soon started to become a frequent occurrence. Anderson was fiercely passionate about all of his opinions, no matter how unfounded his arguments. He was rapidly anti-vaccination and anti-birth control pill, causing he and Rosie to argue about these and other issues many times. Rosie had been working for a mentoring organisation for troubled young people called Big Brother Big Sister. One of the young women she had been mentoring had called for help. Karina was in a really bad place, Rosie said. She invited her to come over and stay for a few days. Karina had been traumatised after being abandoned by her mother when she was only 13 years old. She had also been through several foster homes in her life. Her presence triggered a change in Anderson, who suddenly became erratic and abusive. He would throw books at Rosie, yell in her face, and accuse her of going through his stuff. He flipped his lid over something really trivial. We'd locked him out when we went shopping. His manner was inappropriate and unacceptable. When I look back, this was the start of it. Until that point, I had no idea he could be like this. I thought I had reconnected with someone that I was in love with, and I thought he was in love with me. He was an amazing, brilliant person, considering how crappy his life had become. After this incident, there were long periods without contact with Anderson, sometimes extending into months. These periods of non-contact were always triggered by an out-of-hand argument. Some led to physical assaults, but most were verbal. Some months later, Rosie invited Karina to Christmas dinner. When Karina didn't show up, Rosie was worried and drove over to where she was living to check on her. Karina didn't answer her door, and her cat was at the window looking agitated and scared. Rosie's heart sank and she called the police. They found Karina's decomposing body inside. She'd been dead for five days. Her autopsy revealed that she'd died of a mixture of prescription drugs. Karina was only 23 years old. 
Rosie was devastated, but the stoic Englishwoman took charge. After identifying the body, Rosie took Karina's address book and informed her friends and family. Wow, what a thing to happen to you on Christmas Day. Oh, I know. And while you're like pregnant and probably have a house full of people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a thing to happen ever. Well, Rosie says she never planned to have a child, given her lifelong fear of loss and that her son was an accident. But Rosie adored being pregnant and knew motherhood was going to be her jam. Luke Batty was born on June 20th, 2002. Rosie gave birth after 16 hours of labour, eventually undergoing an emergency C-section. Anderson was interstate at a Russian monastery at the time. Luke was a happy and contented baby and Rosie loved spending time alone and bonding with him. Luke's arrival saw Anderson again become more involved in Rosie's life. He came back as soon as he could, she said. He was a loving dad. He loved him, cuddled him and changed his nappies. That was the whole difficulty with me. Despite the incidents, I knew how good he could be. Anderson had made himself indispensable to the new single mum. Her family was back in England and unable to give Rosie the support she needed at the time, so she accepted his help gratefully, despite his angry outbursts. Rosie had a short period of maternity leave. Anderson's reaction to this was, if you think I'm going to work while you sit on your fat ass, you've got another thing coming. With a mortgage to pay, Rosie returned to work, but it broke her heart to put baby Luke into daycare every day. With Rosie running the household and being the primary carer of Luke, she tried to help Anderson and encourage him to find work. This enraged him and he proclaimed, Woman follows man, man follows God. If man follows woman, it leads him straight to the devil. In July 2002, Anderson became angry with Rosie over some small thing and picked up a wooden chest, threatening to throw it at her. Anderson was a tall, well-built man and Rosie was very scared for her safety. She wanted to leave the country but was advised by Victorian legal aid that she could not return to England with Luke to live without Anderson's permission. The Hague Convention makes it illegal to take a child overseas to live without the written permission from both parents, but this was a document that Anderson would never sign. In January 2003, Anderson threatened Rosie with a large urn and aimed kicks at her head, although they didn't connect. During an access visit, Anderson pulled Rosie's hair and threatened to kill her. He told her, If you ever stop me from seeing Luke, I will kill you and I will kill all your animals. The following day, Rosie sought and was granted an intervention order forbidding Anderson from seeing or speaking to her, but not restricting his access to Luke. This was Rosie's first experience with the judicial system. Sadly, it wouldn't be the last. The protection order infuriated Anderson and a barrage of abusive text messages rained down on Rosie. In them, he falsely accused her of all sorts of depravity, such as exposing Luke to abuse and crude behaviour. There were times I knew he would have loved for us to be together as a family, but emotionally it was unmanageable. But the abuse would just come from nowhere. It'd be great, we'd all be doing stuff together, but then there would be another incident. Rosie said while the threats were serious, she never believed that Anderson would harm Luke. I never feared for my life, she said. It feels like it came out of the blue. There was a history of behaviour, but I guess you get used to it. You never actually believe the worst that could happen will. I think that's what happens in all these tragic cases. But at the end of the day, anybody can do anything to you if they really want to. When Luke was three, Rosie sent Anderson a birthday email on his behalf. Attached was a photo of Luke and Anderson and a happy birthday daddy greeting. Anderson's reply was a long, horrible, rambling email that included some harsh words for his toddler son. I'm disappointed in you, Luke. you become too feminine. You will probably become a homosexual. Your spirit has a dark hood on your head and evil has glue in your mother's life. Sounds like he's unraveling, huh? Mm. It was around this time that Anderson was barred from the Hare Krishna Temple in South Melbourne after getting in a fist fight with a man in his 80s. One day, Rosie arrived home to find a naked Anderson smeared in ashes burning fish guts in her backyard. He explained it was a cleansing ceremony. Anderson had sounded out Rosie about having another child, but the idea of him coming anywhere near her repulsed her. Though she knew in her heart that she would adore another child, she loved being a mother. In December 2005, Rosie, hoping that she could help Anderson by relaxing the financial pressure on him, relieved him of his duty to pay child support. In April of that year, the family court ordered that Anderson could have continued access to Luke, including overnight visits on weekends. In June, Anderson accused Rosie of having a boyfriend. In a rage, he ordered Luke to grab his things, yelling he was leaving and he was taking Luke with him. 
Rosie told him not to be ridiculous. Anderson was homeless at the time. What did he plan to do? Go and live under a bridge? This is when Anderson attacked Rosie, pushing her into a wall and telling her, I would like to knock you into next week. Rosie ran next door and called the police. When she returned to the house with the cops in tow, Anderson was calmly cooking dinner while Luke sat safely on the couch watching TV. The young constables looked puzzled before one said, Mr Anderson, you're going to have to come with us. Greg Anderson quietly put his jacket on and walked out with them. Two hours later, the phone rang. It was Anderson. He wanted to be picked up from Frankston train station. Hell no, Rosie said as she hung up on him. She then phoned the police to find out what had happened. No charges had been laid and he had been released. It was her word against him. Just another domestic. They happen all the time. They do. Court documents revealed that there were some police who believed her and held concerns for Rosie and her son. In opposing Anderson's bail hearings, one constable warned the magistrate that police had genuine concerns Anderson appeared more than capable of carrying out threats to kill. The accused pattern of behaviour appeared to be becoming more erratic and aggressive, the constable stated. Rosie said Anderson sought peace, spending time with the Hare Krishna movement, a Russian Orthodox monastery in country New South Wales, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, or other people like that. But Anderson refused professional help, despite his mental health deteriorating to a point where he had become unemployable. Greg's family loved him very much and were very supportive, but whatever his condition was, he wasn't the type of person who would go to a doctor, Rosie said. Anderson would spend weeks at a time at the Russian monastery, but they too were beginning to notice his erratic and strange behaviour. One night over dinner, Anderson told one of the monks, there are worms coming out of the liver of the man sitting next to me and they are attacking me. Rosie knew she was on her own. She started to research her rights and even began a diploma in community welfare. She learnt that on average one woman a week dies from family violence in Australia every year and that the courts and police were ultimately unable to protect her and Luke. Genuinely believing her life was in danger, Rosie decided to make a will. In it she said, I make this record to clarify the exact relationship that I have with Mr Anderson. He is in no way my partner and I am definitely in no kind of relationship with him. She went on to write, I believe Greg suffers from a mental imbalance, but to my knowledge this has never been medically diagnosed. I am not aware that he has taken prescribed medication to assist with his behaviour. He has admitted he hears voices and I have witnessed frequent bouts of paranoia and delusion. It also contained express wishes that Anderson not be given guardianship of Luke. Although, through the sale of Rosie's estate, it stated that Anderson will be given a flat to live in for him to spend weekends with Luke. Even after everything that had happened, Rosie was going to buy him a flat and a car in the event of her death. In May 2002, Anderson threatened to hit Rosie with a glass vase at her home. Poor little Luke witnessed the attack and was terrified. He cried and begged his father to stop. Rosie tried to call the police, but Anderson knocked the phone out of her hand. He grabbed her by the hair and pulled hard. Rosie described the pain as intense, but the fear was greater. Luke yelled at his father, Get off her! Leave her alone! Rosie closed her eyes and was kicked hard in the thigh by Anderson. When she opened her eyes, he was gone. She phoned the police and told them what had just happened. Greg was found wandering down the road, glass vase still in hand. When they arrested him, he was abusive to the police, yelling and screaming at them. They took him to Frankston Hospital for a psychiatric assessment. A new intervention order named Rosie and Luke as protected persons. Police then referred the case to Child Protection. After assessing the case, Child Protection advised Rosie that they didn't believe Luke was at significant risk of harm and no further action was warranted. Privacy laws restricted Rosie for knowing the outcome of Anderson's psychiatric assessment. Rosie learnt that on some overnight visits with Anderson, Luke had been sleeping in the car with his father, who had found himself homeless again. In November 2012, Anderson downloaded child porn to a USB stick at a public library. He was later charged for the offence, but privacy laws meant that Rosie was not informed. Other parents told Rosie that Anderson had been shouting passages from the Bible at them at Luke's football matches. Anderson still had court-ordered access to Luke on weekends. During one handover, he told Rosie, I would really like to kill you, and I can make you suffer. I will cut your foot off. Rosie recalled that she couldn't move and she felt sick to her stomach. She reported the threats to police, who arrested Anderson the following day. Anderson was remanded in custody and charged. The next day, he was released on bail. In February 2013, courts issued another intervention order against Anderson. 
The stress of constant threats was starting to get to Rosie and she was finding it hard to function. Knowing she had to soldier on for Luke, she visited her local GP and was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. The doctor prescribed her some anti-anxiety medication, which she reluctantly agreed to take, but found that it helped immensely. With further research, she learned that she should have been assigned a caseworker from Family Violence Support Services, but for some reason it never happened. She had fallen through the cracks. More like canyons. Yeah. Navigating the legal system had been a nightmare, but buoyed on by the anti-anxiety medication, she felt she was better equipped than ever to continue the struggle. After an access visit with his father, Luke told Rosie that Anderson showed him a knife and said, It could all end with this. Kane has spoken, and I want you to come with me. I'm tired of this life, and I want you to come with me to the next one. Rosie had believed for some time that her life was in danger, but now she knew she hadn't seen the bigger picture. Sure, Anderson would happily hurt her, but he wanted her to suffer, and the best way to do that was to take Luke away from her. The dawning of this realisation threw Rosie into an absolute state of terror. Anderson had now mentioned a knife twice, and more alarming was that he had communicated how he was going to use it. During counselling, she was told, Rosie, you cannot underestimate how dangerous this man is. Rosie felt she already knew this. She also felt she didn't need counselling. She needed Greg Anderson out of her life. In April 2013, Anderson failed to show up at court to face threat-to-kill charges. Rosie testified about the knife incident with Luke. Warrants were issued for Anderson's arrest. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. All his access to Luke was suspended. As Anderson was living in his car at the time, police were unable to locate him. The next month, Rosie informed the police that Anderson was likely to show up at Luke's football training. Police told Rosie to call triple zero if Anderson appeared. That's our emergency number. The following evening, Anderson did appear. Terrified, Rosie called triple zero, only to be told by local police that warrants for Anderson's arrest had not been received. A delay in Victoria Police's Electronic Law Enforcement Assistance Program meant that the warrants existed but had not been uploaded. Rosie was told that there were undercover police there waiting in cars. Incredibly frustrated, Rosie screamed for them. When she found the bewildered cops, she uncharacteristically berated them in front of surprised onlookers. The following week, Rosie attended Frankston Magistrates Court to seek a variation of the intervention order. Anderson was not present. Rosie said she had lost faith in the system. Court officers report her as being a complete mess. Rosie informed police that Anderson would be coming to Luke's footy training again the following night. He showed up briefly, but police were busy with other matters and unable to attend. The next week, Anderson was finally arrested by police at Tyab Oval. In custody, he responded aggressively to them, telling them that God will get them. In June 2013, Anderson faced court and was granted bail. The matter was adjourned until July 3rd. Rosie said she was scared for her and Luke's safety. The next month, Anderson applied for a variation of the intervention order so he could see Luke. On July 22, 2013, the magistrate ordered Anderson could have access to Luke on weekends and at football, cricket or little athletics, but only when others were present. Rosie, unable to take it anymore, broke down in court. Another day, another court appearance. In a rare move, Anderson actually showed up this time. Oy. The magistrate started questioning Anderson's lawyer about his client's history of previous charges, including outstanding charges that had not been heard. Those will be the child pornography charges, Your Honour, Anderson's lawyer replied. This was the first time Rosie had heard about the child pornography charges. She was horrified and felt so sick she had to sit down. Anderson, unmoved, said nothing and stared at the wall. Later in the week, Rosie had to have that discussion with Luke. Mortified that Anderson may have abused the little boy, she asked him if Daddy had ever touched him inappropriately. Uh, so Dad's a pedophile as well as everything else, Luke said in response. Uh, it turns out that he didn't molest Luke. No. No. There was no evidence of he that. He was into little girls, apparently. Hmm. Luke appeared at school to be a normal, happy kid. 
but the mask was starting to slip. His wit and showmanship had always made him popular with other children, but being put between his mother and father was too much to put on those small shoulders. During counselling, Luke said he was not afraid of his father, but worried about the safety of his mother. Listening from another room, Rosie felt her heart was breaking. In September 2013, after another court hearing to tighten the intervention order, Rosie again broke down and told Child Protection she was at the end of her tether. She demanded they take out a protective order for Luke. So on October 16, 2013, Child Protection closed the file on Luke Batty. Over the Christmas holidays, Rosie and Luke travelled to the UK for five weeks to visit with her family. Upon her return, Rosie said she felt the most relaxed that she'd been in a long time. Everything was ticking along okay. Things had been probably the best that they'd been in months, she said. Even when police said he'd not turned up in court and they needed to serve papers, that there were warrants out for his arrest for assaulting me, I wasn't concerned. That was quite normal. That's horrible that that's your normal. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, after all these years uh, and after the way that it's been dealt with when she's tried to get assistance, I mean... You would think it was normal after that point. You'd think you were crazy for thinking otherwise. It was a way that Anderson had always cheated the system. An IVO could not be enforced if it was never served on him. On January 17, 2014, Anderson failed to appear in court to face the child pornography charges. The following week, Anderson's housemate applied for an intervention order against him as well. Anderson had threatened to cut his head off. Although this information was pertinent to the ongoing struggle Rosie was having to protect Luke and herself, she was not informed due to privacy issues. Again. Warrants were then issued for Anderson's arrest for breach of bail conditions. Police contacted Rosie asking if she knew Anderson's current address or whereabouts as she was the best contact they had in hopes of tracking him down, but she didn't know where he was. The same day, by coincidence, Anderson called Rosie in breach of her IVO She asked him his contact address and then phoned the police, passed on his address and crossed her fingers. Two days later, Rosie was unpleasantly surprised to see Anderson attend Luke's cricket match. Later that week, Anderson phoned to tell Luke that he was living with people he didn't like and was upset that Luke had not contacted him on his return from the UK. Luke was finally starting to see his father for the manipulative and controlling madman he'd become. He still loved his father, but Luke no longer trusted him. He was also embarrassed to be seen with him. Anderson now smelt and looked like the homeless man that he was, not to mention the bizarre bible fueled outbursts he had in front of his friends. This is what Rosie Batty wrote in her book A Mother's Story about this period of time. They say if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it will hop out straight away. But if you place a frog in a pot of tepid water and gradually increase the heat, it will not move, but rather slowly boil to death. For the past 10 years, Anderson had been gradually turning up the heat, and I couldn't tell how hot the water had become. On February 12, 2014, Greg Anderson showed up to Luke's cricket training at Tyab Oval. It had been a fiercely hot Australian day, but by 5.45pm, the sun was starting to lower in the west, sucking the bite out of the warm afternoon. When Rosie arrived, she saw Anderson bowling some balls to Luke at the far end of the oval. After Luke spotted his mother, he ran up to her and asked, Is it okay if I have a few extra minutes with Dad? It was a public place in suburban Melbourne with other kids and their parents. So Rosie replied, I guess so, but five minutes is all. The pair hung out in the nets with Anderson sending a few balls down to his son. Rosie turned away and got on her mobile as she wanted to invite a friend over for dinner that night. It couldn't have been more than 20 seconds before she hears a scream. Seeing Luke on the ground, Rosie initially thinks her son had been struck by a cricket ball. She screams for someone to call an ambulance. She runs down the long dirt road that connects the sports ground with the main street, hoping to direct the ambulance as it arrives. When she sees a flashing red and blue light, she runs back to comfort Luke, but is suddenly aware that the car park is full of police cars. That's when she hears two gunshots. A voice says, Oh my God, they've shot Greg! It's then that she knows, she just knows, her beautiful little boy is dead. She knows that's what the police are going to tell her. When a policeman approaches her, it's a local cop that she recognises. Paul, there's been some sort of accident. Luke's hurt and Greg has been shot, Rosie blurts out. Constable Paul Topham's face is white and speaking slowly, choosing his words carefully, he says, It's not looking like that, Rosie. There's pretty strong evidence to suggest it was no accident. He had a knife. As two more police approach Rosie, she says, don't tell me, so they leave her alone. 
Another policeman approaches. He says nothing and just puts a hand on Rosie's shoulder. Rosie describes it later. He didn't know me, but he knew enough not to speak. She is comforted by his tenderness, and later Rosie is convinced to sit in a police car. Their phone is ringing, and there are text messages coming through. She does what she can to answer them, then her phone battery goes flat. Rosie leaves the police car looking for answers. Eventually, she finds a high-ranking police officer who tells her, Luke has been killed and Greg has been shot. We need to do a thorough investigation. Greg Anderson, after striking Luke in the head with a cricket bat, has slashed the little boy's throat. Through tears, Rosie says, I want to see my little boy. He's all alone out there. I need to be with him. I'm sorry, but you can't go there. Trust me, Rosie, you wouldn't want to see him like that, the officer replies. As Rosie walks away, she looks back to see the small shape of her son's body lying on the ground and thinks, my boy, my baby boy, alone out there in the cricket nets. At around 12 that night, while Rosie was falling apart, Greg Anderson died on the operating table during emergency surgery. He was 54 years old. Anderson had been shot while resisting arrest and threatening ambulance workers with his knife. Rosie said she believed Anderson had felt he would soon no longer be able to see Luke. I think he'd reached the end of hope, she said. The only point to his life was Luke, and he was no longer able to share time with Luke. I think he knew the courts would catch up with him. Life was closing in on him, and he wanted to go to the end of the world and have Luke with him. He was just a tortured, unhappy man, unwilling to deal with his mental health problems. But the Greg I knew was also funny, intelligent, compassionate and kind. I don't want people to think he was a bad person. Rosie says she forgives Anderson and does not want people to hate him. Yes, I forgive him, she said. He wasn't an evil man or a bad man. He was a troubled soul and people wanted to help him. But you've got to want to be helped. The next day, Rosie was surrounded by friends and family in her home. A media scrum had gathered outside her house. Normally, under these circumstances, a family representative would read a statement to give the press a soundbite so that they'd go away. Something like, we have no comment at this time. Please leave the family to grieve in peace. But what happened next was completely unexpected and would change everything. The day after losing her son, displaying courage and poise most of us can't even imagine, Rosie Batty addressed the media directly. It was her explosive words that would lead to a dramatic change in attitude about family violence in this country. I want to tell everybody that family violence happens to everybody, no matter how nice your house is, how intelligent you are. It happens to anyone and everyone. And this has been an 11-year battle. You do the best you can. And you're a victim, and you're helpless. And an intervention order doesn't stop anything like this happening. In the following days, Rosie had to deal with a complete reversal of the natural order of things. She had to face her own son's very public funeral. Rosie drew on her stoic English upbringing to give her strength. Yellow was Luke's favourite colour, and the funeral was awash with it. Flowers, banners, and even Luke's casket, topped with his favourite SpongeBob SquarePants soft toy. She was howling inside, but she knew if she crashed, she'd be torn apart by pain. She had to keep it together for Luke. The community of Tybe was super supportive, organising a funeral, and Rosie was very grateful. Cards and flowers came from friends, family, and complete strangers from all around the country. Some addressed to just Rosie and Tyab. They all found their way to Rosie. Later, after the wake at Tyab Cricket Club, and after everyone had left Rosie's home, Rosie and her brothers drank into the early hours, until their father came in and told them to shut up and go to bed. Rosie felt like she was five again, and she took comfort being in the bosom of her family. Rosie's personal story of family violence and the murder of her son Luke by her ex-partner Greg Anderson would go on to receive widespread public attention in Australia. Rosie described over the coming months the abuse she and her son suffered and the lack of help she received from the courts, police and government agencies. She also defended Anderson's right to have contact with her son. In 2014, a coronial inquest into Luke's death revealed that Anderson may have had an undiagnosed mental illness. He struggled to maintain a job and a place to live and had also been described by those who knew him as unstable, manipulative and aggressive. 
From June 2004 to February 2014, Anderson physically assaulted Rosie and threatened to kill her on numerous occasions, leading to a number of arrests, charges and intervention orders. At the time of Luke Batty's murder, Anderson was facing four IVOs, 11 criminal charges and there were four warrants out for his arrest. Rosie went on to become an advocate for family violence survivors and victims and sought to address perceived systemic failures in responses to family violence in Australia. She's spoken about a lack of communication between services, about public perceptions of family violence, about a lack of funding and about police and legal procedures that she felt disempowered her ability to protect herself and her son, including the protected privacy of perpetrators at the expense of victims. Rosie has publicly shared her experiences as a survivor of family violence to raise public awareness and advocate for social change. Rosie is considered to have had a significant influence on national public attitudes, philanthropy, government initiatives and funding, support services, police and legal procedures related to family violence in Australia. In 2014, Rosie established the Luke Batty Foundation to assist women and children affected by family violence. Rosie was awarded the Pride of Australia's National Courage Medal in 2014, an honorary doctorate by the University of the Sunshine Coast and was ranked number 33 in the list of the world's greatest leaders in 2016 by Fortune magazine. She was also appointed 2015 Australian of the Year. We were going to put her speech in here, um, but it goes for around four minutes and we didn't want to cut it down because it's a really, really powerful, really powerful speech and it was a great platform for her to have to share her struggles and also encourage people um, to participate in improving the family violence legislation and the way it's handled in Australia. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in our show notes and we'll also put a link to that on our Facebook We'll put it up on our Facebook group. Yeah, Yeah. it's really really worth hearing. Rosie said that after her son's death, she had hoped that something would come out of this that would actually show the difficulty women have in abusive relationships. Rosie's story was instrumental in the establishment of the 2015 Royal Commission into Family Violence in her home state of Victoria. It was tabled in Parliament on March 30, 2016. The report is a result of a 13-month inquiry into how to effectively prevent family violence, improve early intervention, support victims, make perpetrators accountable, better coordinate community and government response and evaluate and measure strategies, framework policies, programs and services. It's a big task. Uh, It's a massive task. The report includes eight volumes and is founded on 227 recommendations made by the Commission to improve, guide and oversee a long-term reform program that deals with family violence. This includes the establishment of the Family Violence Protection Act, which provides a detailed definition of family violence, the relationships in which it can arise and a reinforcement of the sound objectives and principles of the Act. Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has said of family violence in Australia that cultural change requires a great advocate and Rosie has been able to do that in a way I think nobody has done before. Yeah, I agree. Mm. On February 16th, 2018, Rosie stepped down from the Luke Batty Foundation. She wrote on their website... Dear friends, it has been a gruelling and unrelenting four years in the public eye and I sincerely thank you for being with me every step of the way. Unfortunately, I realise I can't keep going at this pace forever. It is unsustainable and I am tired. I now need to prioritise my self-care and recognise my limitations, advice that has been given to me by trusted friends for some time. I've spoken at hundreds of speaking events across the country and overseas and campaigned extensively whilst crisscrossing the nation. I've done more media interviews than I ever thought possible and ventured into the most remote and beautiful parts of Australia to ensure that our Aboriginal sisters are not forgotten. Now I need time to myself, time to mourn and remember Luke, the centre of my world. Time to spend at home with my beautiful animals that continue to comfort me in ways that only four-legged companions can. Mm, True that. This is a difficult decision, but I know it's the right decision. I need to step away from my public role for a while and take time to breathe. Luke's legacy can continue to give voices to victims of family violence. Funds will be distributed to appropriate not-for-profit family violence initiatives in line with the purpose of the foundation. We started the Never Alone campaign with a mission to make sure that victims could not be forgotten and put them at the centre of the national conversation about family violence. We did this. We shone a light on an issue that has been ignored for too long. 
Together we gave victims a voice and demanded our leaders act. From compulsory respectful relationships education to family law reform, we have been at the forefront of driving change. There is still much to be done before victims receive the respect that they deserve and I am determined to continue my advocacy to influence the systemic reforms that are still desperately needed, including the family law court system. To everyone who has stood beside me over the last four years, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for remembering Luke and for making sure that he didn't die in vain. Hell yeah. 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 Wow. Oh my God. It's so, so appalling that it takes something like this, but it's so phenomenal that she was able to, well, soldier on, as you say, and just she, really get some changes made. She did so much public speaking. She spoke to over 35,000 people. Yeah. Live. Well, yeah, that's live. I'm thinking like televised. Yeah. It's pretty much all of us. Yeah. This is a pretty well-known story in Australia. Yeah, but probably not overseas. Not overseas. Which is part of why we were, I mean, we, we think it's a very important story, but it's also part of why we're covering it because um, we want we want everyone to know about her yeah. and about how people can change things. I really didn't know the full story too until I started researching this. Yeah, me either. It's amazing. You know, she went to the, the 1800 Respect uh, line. Mm -hmm. That's where uh, battered women can... Um, call for a support. Call for a support. And they had this big television screen up there and you can see all the calls up. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they've got to treat it like a triage. They don't have the funding. They don't have the resources. Yeah. And it's something like they miss 18,000 calls a year. Women just are on hold for too long. They hang up. Oh, wow. And imagine how hard it is for those women to ring to In the first with. place. In the first place. Yeah. So these aren't cracks that people are falling through. They're canyons. They're, they're gigantic canyons. They're chasms. And it's not just in this country. No. No, I'm sure America have the same problem. I'm sure a lot of countries do. Well, we looked do. at those stats. Yeah. 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 Wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, look, we'll put lots of links in, in the notes of this show. If you want to help or you feel that you are in need of help, uh, look, there's people that can help you and uh, there people are. want to hear, hear your story. So, Tara, it feels a bit weird having to uh, go into Aussie as now, but uh, after such a solemn and important story. Yeah, indeed. But we're going to do it anyway, well, aren't we? We're going to do it anyway. So I've got two questions for mm -hmm. you. Do dogs have four legs or two legs and two arms? Well, it depends on what you're dressing them in. And what is Aussie as? <laughs> Aussie as a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Well, I would like to hear one. You would like to hear one now, please? Yes, please. Excellent. So when this story broke on Facebook, people were keen to show support for former Freemason Glenn Langford, probably nicknamed Lango. Hey, Lango. Uh, he was found drunk and naked inside a huge pipe organ with a shit ton of cheeseburgers, a remote-controlled police car, and a toy gun. Sounds like Tuesday night for us. Actually, it was a Tuesday night for him too. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. Lango was arrested on Wednesday after allegedly flooding the Brisbane Masonic Memorial Centre and setting off the fire alarms. He's charged with allegedly damaging a number of organ pipes of the historic instrument, which is insured for more than a million dollars, and destroying part of a decorative wall. Hey, baby, you want to destroy my historic organ pipe? It's insured for a million dollars. Is this one of your pickup lines? <laughs> yeah, works every time. I was going to say, how's that work for you? Not very well. Not very well. The 51-year-old faced charges at the Brisbane Arrest Court on Thursday and was granted bail. He said his intentions were initially well-meaning and that the night had got out of hand after he drank a bottle of Johnny Walker whiskey. Ah. Well, <laughs> as it does. Yes. The court was told he'd been meaning to hand out the cheeseburgers to the homeless. His apology inspired a strong social media reaction, with one guy jumping to his defence saying... What man hasn't woken up after a big night out naked, surrounded by cheeseburgers and full of regret? Yeah, well, it's happened to me on more than one occasion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not just Tuesdays. Uh, people could relate to Lango's big night out with one Facebook user saying, I'm sure at some stage of our lives we've had a night like this. Maybe not to the same magnitude, but we've all had that night. Cheeseburger debris was left scattered on the floor of the Grand Hall of the Heritage-listed temple in Brisbane CBD, which, as I mentioned, features one of the biggest organs in Queensland. It's feared that the organ, installed in the 1930s, may be too damaged to be repaired. Oh, no. Uh-oh. 
The magistrate heard from Lango's lawyer, who explained that he'd recently lost his job and was getting over the breakdown of a 16-year relationship. Oh, poor Lango. I know. If you're ever going to fuck up naked with cheeseburgers, it's going to be around that time. Lango was having a bad week. I think so. Yeah. He was granted bail on the condition that he stayed more than 100 metres away from the Brisbane Masonic Memorial Centre. Things just got a little loose. I was out of it, Lango said, before apologising to all the righteous Freemasons everywhere. Yeah, peace out. Total mic drop. Oh, maybe then a smoke bomb. And then he disappears in a flurry of cheeseburger wrappers. Lango out. Where did Lango go? We will never know. (laughs) Hey, you know what I love, Tara? What do you love? Is when somebody goes out of their way... Because they've got a busy day. Well, they would probably a busy life even. Busy life to write down a review for Bloody Murder. That's very nice of them. It is very nice of them. So today we'd like to thank Sasquatch 83420 from the USA. Well, there's a lot of Sasquatches, obviously. Well, in the USA there are. They number in the thousands. (laughs) They do. They, They number in the... Um, Well, the tens of thousands, in fact. Hey, speaking of mic drops and smoke bombs... I think um, we're out of here, almost. I think we're almost out of here. So thanks for listening, and thanks to our patrons. Thank you. If you would like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink or some a packet of burger rings... Mm, Or heaps. There's a PayPal donate button there, too. There's also a link to our merch store, which has some some fabulous designs. Very good designs, done by Bernaldo Black. So I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. All this shit. And all we the got things. It. All, the, all the things, sorry. All, all the things. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Well, I think we're going to be funnier next week. Oh, my God. We need to be very funny next week. But I think that was such a good story. Yeah, I think we have to keep the conversation open about that. Yeah. This is not fixed. No. It's, it, look, it's, it's well, broken. It's, it, it's Rosie has done something. Started that conversation and things are getting fixed. And people need to join in to and really help But we really need to keep this going. And now I'm thinking about your dog in a little bit. Oh, I don't think she'd like that. Actually, she would. She'd want to chew all of the food and get off it. Oh. She would totally do that. Really? Yum, yeah, yum, yum, yum. Little Chicken pop-pop. nuggets. Nom, 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 nom. They had, they had the intercom on in the room and they kept lying that it wasn't on. And they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.